Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I'm always looking to help the Next Level Soul audience take their soul to the next level. And I've been able to partner with Mind Valley to present you guys with a ton of free master classes between 60 and 90 minutes covering mind, body, soul, relationships, and conscious entrepreneurship. Some of these master classes are taught by spiritual masters, relationship experts, best selling authors, legends in the personal growth and spirituality space, and so much more. So if you want to sign up for any of our free mind, body, and soul masterclasses, just head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Well, we've made it to episode 100. I want to thank everybody listening for all the support that has helped to get to this amazing milestone. I am humbled by all of the amazing comments and messages that I get from all of you listening to the show. And I'm so glad that the show is helping you on your spiritual and personal growth journey. And I wanted this episode to be special since it was episode 100. So I came in with a very heavy hitter. We have on the show today, Rich Roll, who is one of the top podcasters in the world. He is also an ultra-endurance athlete, full-time wellness and plant-based nutrition advocate, popular public speaker, as well as an inspiration to millions and millions of people around the world. At the age of 40 and after years of struggling with drugs, alcohol, and unhealthy living, Rich dedicated his diet to plants and his body to purposeful action. Just two years later, he began clocking top finishes at Ultraman World Championships and leading a community of others looking to transform their lives. Rich is an absolute inspiration to me. He started his journey later in life and it really is an example of why it's never too late to change your life. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Rich Rollman. How you doing, Rich? Good, 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 man. Happy to be here. Excited to talk to you, Alex. Thanks for having me. Man, thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. I am, I've been a, an admirer of yours for a while from a distance, uh, being a, uh, a vegan and a plant-based person myself. And you are, um, in, in many ways, uh, a, a source of inspiration for us old folks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Come on, man. I'm, I'm older than you. I'm sure I'm older than you. You are. You are a little, a few years older than me without question, but, mm-hmm. but, but your beginning of your journey in your forties that you changed your whole life and became this, this athlete. And I'm in my forties knocking on the door of 50 and I'm like, mm-hmm. well, there's, there's hope for us. So I can't wait to get into the conversation with you, man. So I wanted the first question I wanted to ask you, Rich is, before your transformation, what was life like before you became this kind of fitness guru and changed your whole life and everything? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a pretty traditional household. My needs were met. I, you know, I was reared in the Washington, D.C. area. 
and, and grew up in a pretty education first environment with pretty high expectations for achievement. Um, I was kind of an awkward, uh, socially anxious kid who had a hard time figuring out how to fit in. I definitely wasn't one of the cool kids and, um, you know, found swimming. That was my kind of first love and sport that, you know, served me well. It was the one thing that I actually had any competence in. And, you know, I learned about life and um, how to accomplish goals through that sport that transferred into the classroom. And so by the time I was a senior in high school, I was, you know, pretty accomplished in, in, in both of those arenas and got into a bunch of fancy colleges, ended up going out to the West Coast to Stanford to, to you know, attend this amazing university, but also to compete on their their swim team, which at the time was like the number one program in the country. And it was like a dream come true. I was training with like Olympic champions and world record holders and stuff like that. Albeit me being kind of a bench warmer, I wasn't a scholarship athlete um, and, and lived that life and, and loved it. Um, but when swimming was over, uh, that was kind of the end of my athletic career. And, you know, that vacuum ended up getting filled with drugs and alcohol, which, you know, took me down some dark alleyways. Uh, I have a whole kind of addiction recovery story mm -hmm. um, that got pretty dark and, and really upended my life in, in, in some pretty, uh, you know, serious ways. But uh, I had the good fortune of getting sober at 31 uh, after attending law school and kind of pursuing a career in law and spent, you know, between 31 and, and 40 really building a foundation of sobriety and beginning to kind of wrestle with my inner demons and you know why I had you know behaved that way and started asking myself deeper questions about you know who I wanted to be in the world and it became apparently you know kind of evident that I was in the wrong career like I kind of pursued this career in law because I just felt like it was what was expected of someone like me and not really a function of of you know what I was naturally kind of attracted to. I was sort of jamming a square peg into a round hole. And because I know how to work hard, I know how to suffer and all of that was able to achieve some modicum of success, but I always felt like I was living somebody else's life. <clears throat> and with the tools that I was learning in sobriety, you know, it was slowly becoming untenable to have this kind of you know multiple personality or or kind of you know split um, between this you know, person that I was slowly becoming and the person who kind of showed up in the professional world. And that ended up kind of creating a bit of an existential crisis that collided with a health scare because ever since I retired from swimming, I never really took care of myself. And in the kind of corporate law context, it's all about, you know, 80 hour weeks and and you know, ordering in takeout food and hitting the fast food drive-through on the way home, and I put on fifty pounds, and you know that all caught up to me in a in a pretty visceral singular moment where I struggled to walk up a simple flight of stairs without getting winded, and had tightness in my chest, and heart disease runs in my family, and it was sort of like that moment when I decided I needed to get sober. But in this case, I realized I needed like rehab for my life or rehab at least initially, um, for how I was taking care of myself. And that kind of set in motion a series of events that have, that have, you know, over many, many years led me to what I'm doing today. But, you know, I ended up changing my relationship with food and with my body and adopted a plant-based diet and 
invigorated from that, you know, started pursuing athletic interests. And that led me into the world of ultra endurance. And in, in my 40s, was able to distinguish myself in some, you know, kind of interesting races that caught the attention of the media because people were confused. Now there's lots of plant-based athletes, but at the time there weren't very many out there and people wanted to know, like, how do you go and do, you know, a three-day double Ironman race when you're not eating any animal products and not for nothing, like, aren't you like a lawyer? Like, what are you even doing here <laughs> to begin with? So, you know, that like opened up a lot of doors for me and led, led to the opportunity to write a book and the podcast I started in the wake of the book coming out and like, here we are today and I get to talk to cool people like you. Oh, well, that's, it's, thank you for, for that. And, and it's, it's really interesting. What I find fascinating about your story is by that once you uh, got sober, there was a, almost a, a decade time period there where from the outside, it seemed like you had everything. You, you were successful. You were, you were, you know, making money. You were, you were, you know, living the dream as many people think you worked as a corporate, if I remember mistaken, a, as a lawyer in, in Hollywood in one way, shape or form, right? Entertainment in the entertainment business. Yeah. Yeah. In century city. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So then you're, you know, you're, you're hanging out with celebrities and those. So from the outside, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Kind, kind yeah. of, kind of, you know, well, you're not really hanging like out. That. You're, you're not, you're yeah. not at Brad Pitt's house. I get it. But generally speaking mm -hmm. from the outside, a lot of people looking at it like, Oh man, you work in Hollywood and you work in, in entertainment law and all that. So it seemed like you had everything, but at the, but you, there was something missing on the inside. And I'm sure, you know, many of your colleagues who are still there and didn't have mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, come to Jesus moment where they just said, I have to, I have to change something inside of me. What was that thing inside you that was calling for you to make this change? What was making you so unhappy? What, what was that thing inside you that you said, I had, besides the health scare on, on, on mm -hmm. this kind of thing, this, this crisis that you had. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, it really, it was really pain. You know, pain is the only thing that's ever gotten me to like, you know, <laughs> make hard decisions or take risks or change, you know, any of my errant ways. Um, and, you know, the facts of my experience are, are unique to me, but I think it's pretty common that, you know, people wake up after many years in a chosen career and think like, is this like, wait, I I wasn't sure this was the life that I actually consciously chose for myself. And I certainly was one of those people, um, but it just became um, harder and harder to show up and even do simple tasks in my job. Like I, I just knew like, I'm not supposed to be here. And yet I had invested so much time and so much money in this career and was kind of raised in a, in a safety seeking household. Like I don't come from a long line of entrepreneurs and risk takers or artists. Like you get your good job and you work hard and you put your nose down and that's how you make your way in the world. So the idea of like walking away from this career was the most terrifying thing I could, I could possibly imagine. And, you know, just to disabuse people who might have some familiarity with my story of like how it all went down, it wasn't some big dramatic thing. It was a very gradual process of starting to attune my focus and my attention uh, into things that that were bringing me joy and happiness and kind of fertilizing that terrain over many, many years. Well, I was slowly kind of 
losing interest in the law and investing in other things. <clears throat> you know, it took a long time. Like I left the corporate law firm, but then I was a solo practitioner and then I practiced law with like a couple partners and went back to being so, but all the while kind of like losing interest and making less and less money doing it because <laughs> I was diverting that, you know, my attention into other places that weren't, you know, that weren't paying the bills. Um, and now everything's fine, but you know, I had to endure some hardship making that transition, some financial hardship in, in, in order to make it work. So it sounds like you did a, an inventory of your life. Do you have any tips for people who are listening that might have, they might be in that same place where they're just not happy where they are. They might be financially stable or uh, in, in that way, but not happy. I remember I had a job that was paying me, I was one of the highest paid editors doing promos in Florida uh, in the, in the, uh, in the early two thousands or in late nineties, I think, but I was miserable because I was doing promos for Matlock for God's sakes. Uh, But I was making insane money and it, I just, I literally just started to act up so I could get fired. I literally on a subconscious level started to do things that made me impossible to work with because I just wanted to get out. I didn't have the courage to do what you did. Even if it was a slow yeah. process, I didn't even have that courage. So how do you, any tips you have as far as doing inventory, a life inventory of where you are? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll preface my answer by saying that, you know, especially in our social media age, we're kind of inundated with these messages of like, pursue your passion and like, you should chase your dream and all of that. And I think, although, uh, you know, that comes from a good place of, you know, everybody should feel fulfilled in the life that they're pursuing. I think oftentimes it makes people feel bad about themselves because a lot of people actually don't know what their passion is or what the thing would be that would make them happy. And so it ultimately, you know, becomes like a guilt inducing thing. And I was certainly one of those people. Like I never even considered what, what might make me happy or what could be a different possibility for how I was living. And the only uh, you know, so the advice that I would give is just to, is just to share the experience of, of what I did. Um, this isn't, isn't the only way, um, but it began with some of the tools that I learned in, in 12 steps through recovery. And that tends to be kind of the lens through which I, you know, process all of these things. And a big part of that is doing an inventory, like a big inventory and then a daily inventory that kind of connects you more objectively to your behaviors and over time kind of reveals patterns and you start to see why do I keep doing this thing? And it, it just makes you more reflective and, and creates a greater understanding of what's impulsing you and, you know, and the like. Um, and then beyond that, and I will credit our mutual friend Sasha for, mm-hmm. for getting me involved in this, but I started doing The Artist's Way, which is Julia yes. Cameron's book and program yeah. um, that is really about unlocking creativity. I'm sure you know the many screenwriters that are fans of yours are familiar with this. It's a great program for anybody who wants to be a writer. But I think beyond that, it's an incredible tool for that journey of like self-connection and trying to you know, figure out what your authentic voice is. Uh, and, you know, a big piece in that is, is doing what's called the morning pages, which is just writing three pages, the first thing in the morning, um, which is kind of like a, you know, the garbage dump of like getting out of your head, like all the stuff that you ruminate on, 
so that you can kind of get clear on what it is that you really want to focus on. And that's been a practice that, you know, I've been doing for decades at this point. Um, and then to supplement that, there's a book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Sasha was the first person to give me a copy of that book. And that's a book that I read. I read that book, you know, at least once a year and have had Stephen Pressfield on my podcast. I just have so much reverence and respect for um, for that book and, and the other books on that terrain, that subject matter that, that he's written. And that was also super helpful. Um, and then just beyond that, like just the practice of journaling every day, you know, as a, as a means of developing that connection, you start to learn about yourself. And I started, I, I remember very vividly making a decision, not about like, oh, I'm going to leave this career in a, you know, in a, in a, in an explosion of glory and go do something else. It was really a journey of like, well, what does make me happy? Like, I wasn't even sure. Right. So, oh, you know what? Like, I really miss swimming like i'm gonna go back to the pool or i really like you know kind of running outdoors with my shirt off with the sun on my back like it wasn't i need a this car or i need this position or i need this house or apartment it was really primal simple things and i just you know decided that i was going to give myself permission to indulge in those pursuits that made me happy. And I wasn't going to make them subservient to some career path. And kind of the more you do the things that bring you joy, maybe it's like model airplane building or right. you know, writing jokes for possibly becoming a stand-up comedian or whatever it is in your life. I think when you water that garden, you're giving it energy and you're kind of telling the universe hey, this is what I'm into. And in my experience, the universe kind of responds in kind by saying, oh, you're into that? Like, well, here's a little, uh, here's, here's a little Easter egg. Like, why don't you come over here? Like, it's not like a whole path gets laid out in front of you where, like, where you could see clearly how this might become a career, but um, you start to get evidence uh, in the form of little openings and kind of cracks in the universe that, continue to guide you. And I made a choice of following those, you know, little bricks as they got laid in front of me and did not have any idea how that would ever become a vocation. But I kind of put that out of my mind. And I, I said, I don't care. Like I like doing these things and I'm going to continue to do them. And I trust that, you know, in the process of doing this, I'm finding something out about myself. I'm figuring out who the authentic, you know, person is inside of me and trying to bring voice to that. And I think when you develop that as a practice, uh, it becomes kind of a guiding force or principle that leads you in a direction in which opportunities will eventually arise. Maybe not on your timeline or <laughs> never, in the manner in which you desire. <laughs> yeah, like it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work out like you know, when you imagine what it could be like, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. But if you're devoted to the process of it, to the practice of it, it almost doesn't matter because those opportunities are like side benefits. The real juice is like the sense of self that you get from committing to you know that type of way of life, it's so interesting, and I think you could you uh, can agree with me on this. Uh, when I started podcasting, I was like, "This is where the money is." Obviously, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I the, the, my first after my first episode, I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna be doing this for the next seven years, and it's mm -hmm. gonna support my family." Like that was not a thing that was even in my oh. mind. I I wished it. 
I hoped for it. And it was my side hustle for a little while, while I was still directing and doing post-production and things like that. But I started to feed it little by little, more and more. And all of a sudden, people started to show up. And with this show, which is a much newer show, it's only about a little bit over a year old, all of a sudden, you know, I get calls and I'm like, hey, do you want, you know, I, I, I know Rich, do you think Rich would be a good guest? I'm like, yeah, I think Rich would be a fantastic guest to come on the show. And things, so the universe starts to open up and, and provide opportunities when you give it signals that you are serious about something. Is that your experience as well? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah. And, you know, my experience with my podcast is not dissimilar. I mean, I started it 10 years ago. Uh, so the idea that it could, you could, it could be a vocation or you could make a living doing, doing it was preposterous. I mean, you know, even Adam Carolla at that time, you know, right. was trying to figure out how to make money doing it. Like nobody was making, you know, so I was doing it for the joy and for the love and because right. it was fulfilling and, you know, the ecosystem kind of grew up around me while that was happening. And I found myself in a very privileged situation all of a sudden, but it wasn't because that was a strategy or a plan. <laughs> it was because it was it was, it was, it was an extrapolation of that very same practice, which is like, this is enjoyable for me and it's fulfilling and I dig it and it's making my life better. And, you know, I'm going to keep doing this and just see where it leads me. And it right. really was nothing more than that. And, and also that we're also serving others as well. I think that was the big, big takeaway for me is that by me doing this, I serve other people. And that feels really good and helping other people with these conversations and, and guiding them through pitfalls of the film industry. And, and now here in the spiritual and personal growth space, you know, this conversation is going to help somebody listening to it or someone watching it around the world. And we have no idea the impact that our actions have on other people, especially people like us, like doing podcasting or writers or things. You have no idea what your art uh, or your work will, how it will affect other people. Cause I'm sure you've had this people probably come up to you at events and go, Rich, your podcast has changed my life. Oh my God. It's like, the, it's happened to me. And it's such a, Oh my God, such an amazing feeling when you hear something like that. Yeah, it's, it, it is very cool and very fulfilling and, and almost embarrassing, but <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> when, you can, when you can, when you can like wed something, uh, that you enjoy to a purpose that is greater than yourself. I mean, that's the real juice. And, you know, the service thing is something, again, that I learned in recovery, like prior to getting sober, the idea that you could enhance the fulfillment and, and happiness and sense of purpose in your own life by like giving of yourself to other people selflessly, like that was not part of my mental model at all. Um, but I've learned to do that reflexively and it's a practice because I'm selfish and irascible and, you know, grumpy and all the like, just like anybody else. Um, but when I cultivate that, uh, my life gets better. And what's really cool is that it's helpful to other people. And I just don't know what else in life is, you know, cooler than that, honestly. Now there's a lot of things that we do in our lives, uh, 
in regards to the stories that we tell ourselves. And the stories that we tell ourselves are the things that hold us back for the most part. How do you get past those stories? Because, I mean, you went through you went through some you know some tough times with addiction, and that story haunts people and can completely ruin people's lives if you continue to tell that story and live in that story and not focus on the future. How do you or what advice do you have for people listening? to get past those stories that we tell ourselves that we can't do this or we can't do that. Oh my God, that happened to me. So that's why I can't go there. I'm not worth it. So on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. I I think this is like an epidemic. Most (laughs) people are stuck in some kind of narrative loop, whether positive or negative, it doesn't matter because it's not true. You know, like most of what we tell ourselves about ourselves and the world and our past and what we're capable of, you know, is a lie. So I think the, the, the first step is to recognize that and develop like a separation between your higher consciousness and the kind of, uh, you know, vacillations of, of, of your thinking mind, right? So it's like, it's a kind of a, a you know, developing a more Eastern perspective, like, oh, actually I can be an observer of my thoughts And those thoughts don't have to control me. I think, you know, like that epiphany for me was huge to realize like, oh, I have an awareness of what my mind is thinking. Those things aren't necessarily the same. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that was huge. Mm -hmm. And, and then understand that um, you do have the power to change your story and that your story is really in essence, just a few isolated incidents. Like imagine Imagine your life as a, a, you know, a, a long branch of a tree and along that branch, there are smaller branches that pop up or little buds along the way. And each one of those is, is a story that comprises the greater story that you tell yourself about who you are. But in truth, that branch is long and there's millions, if not billions of other stories that just never sprouted into branches for some reason, mm-hmm. but we, in our minds, drill down on a couple few examples and decide this is how I will be defined or how I'm defining myself. And I think to broaden your attention and say, why am I giving that story so much attention when this other thing over here, which contradicts that story that I believe to be true, puts into question the whole story that I'm telling myself about who I am, suddenly you feel empowered to kind of shift that narrative. And I think the other thing is learning how to be honest with yourself Um, especially about your secrets and the things that you're hiding or that you're ashamed of or grief stricken about and trying to bring voice to those because um, a lot of our negative self-talk derives from some form of shame about something that happened to us or something that we did. And unless we, you know, excavate that through therapy, through sharing with another human being, um, or any other kind of, you know, modality that suits you, uh, it will continue to fester and, and kind of entrench that negative story that you're looking to transcend. So I'm a huge believer in, in, in therapy and obviously in recovery and all these other modalities that have allowed me to make peace with my past um, so that it doesn't, it doesn't imprison me anymore. And, you know, I can tell you from somebody who's been to thousands and thousands of of AA meetings, there's nothing more um, extraordinary or liberating than seeing somebody get up in front of a group of people 
and tell some harrowing story about some shameful thing that happened to them or that they did uh, and do it without any kind of like emotional trigger attached to it. Uh, right. Because you see somebody who's made peace with that and it doesn't hold them hostage. And you're like, wow, like that guy did that. And he's like laughing about it. Like, how do you do that? And you do it through summoning the courage to be vulnerable. And, you know, we're taught, especially, you know, as, uh, as, as men, that vulnerability is a weakness, right. but I think it requires a tremendous amount of courage to be vulnerable because you're being asked to talk about things that you're ashamed about. But in that sharing and in that, you know, um, flexing of, of vulnerability, that's where you find true strength and peace with yourself. And I think that's the real engine that will lead you to, you know, changing your story and, and creating a healthier one. Now, during your, your recovery, and then also during the time uh, that you were moving towards becoming more of, a, of an athlete, what part did spirituality play in that? Did you connect uh, to, um, you know, not religious, but did you connect to other things that were higher than yourself, internal meditation, uh, Eastern philosophies, what, what part did any of that play in this transformation that you, this, this massive transformation from where you were to where you are today? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's all spiritual. Um, mm -hmm. and that spirituality has never taken any kind of dogmatic form. Um, and it's been, uh, you know, a kind of a slow, expanding experience for me you know i grew up in a like i said a pretty traditional house we went to church once in a while but <laughs> you know i never connected with that in in any meaningful way and had no interest in in investing any of my energy in anything religious or spiritual or spiritual and it wasn't until i was kind of utterly broken and in a treatment center um, where it was impressed upon me that, you know, my best thinking, me thinking I'm this smart guy and I have these fancy degrees and I've done this and I've done that. Well, my best thinking basically landed me in a, a mental institution. I mean, that's what a treatment center is, right? Like how smart are you, dude? So, that's amazing. You know, By the way, I got to stop you. I got to stop you there for a second. That is an amazing comment to you. Like you're so fancy. You've got all this stuff. Look where all of this intelligence has landed you. Right. Great. I just wanted to point that out. It's amazing. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. That was, you know, the, the ego doesn't want to hear that, but that's exactly what the ego needed to hear. Right. 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 So, you know, you're, you think you've got it all figured out in your mind, but if you can let go of your attachment, to how your brain functions and allow other people in to guide you, people who know a little bit more about this world than you, if you can humble yourself, uh, you just might learn a thing or two. And, you know, I got sober because a guy handed me a broom and said, sweep the floor. And instead of saying, how is that going to keep me from drinking? I just said, okay, I'll do it. And when somebody said, well, why don't you make the coffee, you know, at this meeting at, at six o'clock in the morning, every day. I just said, okay, I'll do that because these people seem to have figured out how to stay sober. Uh, whereas my mind would say, I don't need to do that. Just tell me how to like not drink. Like, I don't want to make coffee for anybody. Um, so it was, you know, I think humbling myself into, into, into a place of realizing like, I don't have all the answers and I can't solve this in my mind. was a huge piece. And I remember in that treatment center, 
um, one of the counselors saying to me, Rich, are you a uh, spiritual being having a human experience or a human being? Or what did he say? Are you a human being having a spiritual experience or a spiritual being having a human experience? And I was like, I was like, wait, say that again. Like, I still can't get it right. And I was like, I don't understand the question. Like, I was so detached from, uh, you know, being able to really kind of understand anything non-material at the time. But I've since come to truly believe that, you know, I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. And, you know, we tend to believe that our senses, what we can see, hear, smell, taste, feel, um, is the ultimate dictate of reality. But I think there's a lot more going on. And when you live in the mystical and you live in the awe and the wonder and you open yourself up for greater possibilities, um, that's when I think that the true magic can occur. And you know, for me, again, that's another practice. But when I can inhabit that, um, then I'm available for the miracle. And when I look back over the last 15 years, the fact that I'm in the position that I'm in right now, it makes absolutely no sense. There's no logical or rational explanation for how I went from where I was to where I am today. Like this is not the result of, you know, my self-will or, you know, my plan or some goal that I was, you know, seeking. There's a lot more at play here, I think, you know, mm -hmm. or I'd like to believe. And so, um, that's kind of, you know, it is a, it, it is a more Eastern, obviously, you know, perspective on, on reality. Um, but again, it doesn't, and it, and it leans towards, you know, Buddhist traditions and et cetera, but I wouldn't consider myself a Buddhist. You know, one of the questions when, when we were, when we decided to do this conversation together, the, the one question that was, that kept popping into my head, I'm like, I have to ask Rich this question because it's a question that so many of us um, have trouble with especially when we're doing something large. How did you tell yourself the story that you were going to become an ultra athlete in your forties? Like there must've been a thought process and I'm sure your brain said you're insane. As, as, as by the way, many other voices around you said the same thing. If I, if, if I may quote your book, people were like, you're absolutely nuts. And now you're not only going to just run a little marathon or half marathon, you're, you're talking about an Ironman and then eventually an ultra marathon, uh, double Ironman. What was the thought process that made you believe that you could even attempt to step on the same field with people that have been doing this for years and also younger athletes than yourself? Yeah, I mean, the only way I know how to answer that is that there was something inside of me that that like I can only characterize as a knowing, you know, like I just knew that it felt right. And there was like an internal switch that got flicked and a sense of direction. Like it just felt like I just knew this was what I needed to do. And I knew that I was capable of doing it. Like, and I, I very vividly like, I mean, there was a couple of events leading up to that. I mean, sure you know, as I was getting more fit and I talk about this in the book, I went out for a run. I had only been running, you know, a, a little bit at that point and ended up like running like 24 miles, which was longer than I ever had. And I felt amazing. And I thought like, wow, like I never thought that was something that I could do. Like maybe, 
I'm sitting on, you know, some kind of untapped potential that I wasn't aware of. And I started getting interested in the world of ultra endurance, which was something I had no familiarity with whatsoever. And I think it was compounded by the fact that, you know, alcoholism really, uh, you know, crushed my athletic dreams in college. Like I, I had not achieved my potential as an athlete. So there was a bit of unfinished business there. Um, but I read about this Ultraman race, which for people that don't know is a double Ironman distance uh, triathlon that over three days circumnavigates the entire big island. It's like a 320 mile race. Um, and in this article, the description of this experience made it sound more like a story out of the Bhagavad Gita. Like it was like this spiritual odyssey. It wasn't like a race. It was, yes, it's a race. It's a world championship. And like people are trying to win, but it really was about transformation. And it spoke to me because I realized that that was what I was seeking. Like I was trying to um, pursue personal transformation through endurance. And it was like this epiphany where I realized that like endurance training is like this catalyst or this vehicle for greater self-understanding. Like when you test yourself, when you take your body to the ultimate limits, mentally, emotionally, physically, et cetera, it's sort of like, uh, you know, sitting in the cave for 90 days, you know, it's a, it's a version of that where suddenly you can't run for, from yourself and you meet yourself as you really are. And with that experience, you deepen your understanding of self. And, and really for me, like, yes, I'm an athlete, but it's really about ultra endurance as this vehicle for spiritual growth. And here it was like, here's this race. It's everything that you're looking for. And something inside of me, even though that sounded insane and I couldn't believe human beings could even, you know, propel themselves for these distances. I was like, that is what I'm looking for. That is what I'm going to do. Like, this is going to happen. And I kind of started to orient my life around um, pursuing that goal. That's, it's, it's a remarkable story. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've, I've heard that, that, athletes when they are especially athletes at at the level that you were uh that you were um competing in you're pushing your body and your mind to places that human beings generally don't go and that at a certain point and, and please let me know what correct me if i'm wrong but at a certain point you don't think anymore and you're now just you're just being and there's that thing called the flow or the flow state during those moments when you're on that, like the last leg, I, I guess, or, or wherever in that race it, that it got to a point where everything was everything in your body is saying, stop, but yet you mm -hmm. keep going. I remember I've heard, I've heard David Goggins talk about this a lot in his, on his interviews that you just keep going. Is there something that you tap into? Is it almost a spiritual place that you go to? Because you you transcend where you are at a certain point. In my in my small ability in small times doing athletic uh, competitions, I've had that in small doses. I can only imagine at, at at the level that you were competing in. So what happens at that moment? And do you do you have a spiritual? Did you ever have a spiritual? like thing happened to you? I mean, I'm not saying that Jesus is running next to you or something, but, um, but something that you tap into that flow state, that thing that it's hard to explain with words. 
Yeah, I mean, it is hard to explain with words, and I'm not sure that I can really, you know, put words to it other than to say that there is an aspect of, of flow state, but it's a little bit different. Like flow state, there, it's flow state-esque in that your relationship with time kind of shifts, and there is a sense of oneness, but because it's so painful, it's not pleasurable in the way that flow states are typically characterized. So I think right. it's a little bit different, but... We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, but, you know, it has kind of shared DNA with like what it must be like to have a breakthrough in meditation where, you know, your consciousness feels expanded and, um, and, and there is a oneness between your mind, body, your soul, and the environment that you're in that is inexplicable. And I think it's what a lot of endurance athletes are chasing um, because in that heightened state, there's no room for that thinking mind to like loop, you know, because you're basically in this survival mode. And what's exciting about that is really testing the outer limits of, of what you're capable of. And the fulfilling aspect of it is realizing that you can do more than you think than you thought that you could. And I think we're all, you know, capable of that. And, you know, these endurance races are just a, again, like a vehicle for connecting with that. And those experiences then raise the ceiling on how you see the world more broadly. And you realize like, Oh, what other areas of my life am I kind of just blithely, you know, bundling through where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm even unaware that I could be, doing better or doing more. Um, but in those moments, yeah, like, I don't know how else to, other, to describe it other than other than that. Um, I mean, it sucks when you're in it. I don't want to make it sound like there's some kind of like ecstatic, like, you know, it's some blissful it's place. Every, some blissful place. you want you to stop, you know, but it's like, even if you go one step further, it's like an esteemable act, right? And that builds upon itself. And so brick by brick, you're kind of creating this new person as a result of putting yourself on the line in that kind of visceral way. Yeah. yeah, And you're just kind of like, I have to believe you're breaking down all preconceptions you might've had in your mind at one point or another, while you're going through that process, especially the first time. And you do after a few times, you've been there before, but that first time Mm -hmm. that you were going and, and, and you were pushing yourself beyond places you've ever gone physically, mentally, um, I got to believe that. I mean, I have to believe that the monkey brain inside your head must have been going, I mean, a hundred miles a minute, just going, stop, stop. You're hurting yourself. You're going to kill yourself. How did you, I mean, we all have monkey brains and we have problems just on a daily basis. I can only imagine trying to shut out that voice when you are literally breaking your body down to a place where you are on the edge of of possibly really hurting yourself. Well, I mean, two observations on that. I mean, the, 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 the thing to understand is that it's not like you show up for this race and you haven't done anything similar to it. Like right. the training leading up to it, like this slow boil, it's like 
you see Laird Hamilton drop in on a 40 foot wave and it's, you know, he didn't go from a one foot wave to a 40 foot wave. Like he worked his way up to that so that the 40 foot wave is his new normal. And the training that I put in to do these races was, you know, analogous to that. I mean, there were breakthroughs. I remember, you know, I had, I worked up to a point where, um, uh, I had to do a 40 mile run, you know, for in training, you know, for this race. And that was just, That's you know, insane. I, I'd never done any. Yeah. And I did it, you know, and I, I, I started in Venice and I ran all the way up to point doom along PCH and then ran back. Wow. And I just couldn't believe that I actually succeeded in doing that. And, and I still had like, you know, I don't know, like three, two and a half, three months before the race. So it's like I had experiences along the way so that when I showed up at the race, like I knew I could do it already because I'd done so much of training. So it wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm never going to be able to do it. Like I knew that I as long as I didn't crash my bike or some, you know, unless something went terribly wrong, like that I was going to be able to complete the distance. It was just a question of like, you know, what's the strategy, you know, how to do it and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. So um, there's that. And then I think yeah, you have this voice in your mind saying, stop, stop, stop. But, you know, part of like being in that elevated heart rate where it's just your breath, you know, does quiet that. Um, and it can be kind of a, a, a peaceful thing. Like you can't be going all out in a three-day race. Like you've got to find a pace that's manageable and it becomes about efficiency and economy. Like what is the pace that I can sustain for nine hours on this bike or eight hours on this bike, Jesus. you know, and because you've adequately trained for it, like you're like, okay, I, I know what that is. And I know what that should feel like so that I can finish, you know, and not be like dying at the end because I've got to wake up the next day and run 52 miles for the third day of that race. That's yeah. I, I mean, it's, as we're talking, I'm thinking about like 40 miles. I'm like 40, I, I can't even run a mile, let alone 40 in a day as part of your training, no less. So it's, it's all, all perspective. I mean, there's right. also runners now that are running 240 mile races and, you know, doing is there's always somebody doing like something crazier. And that's, what's, you know, amazing about the human spirit. Like once somebody does something, then the floodgates open and then, you know, everybody can do that all of a sudden. And four minute just, mile, you know, the four minute mile thing. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, there was a, there was a moment in your book that you talk about a crash that happened and how it, it kind of the challenge of crashing your bike and having to keep moving forward and the kind of um, analogy of life and what it, it, what you have to do when certain things happen, because you know, you're in the middle of a race you're dying already. It's hard on you. You're physically beating down. And then all of a sudden your bike crashes on you. And now you have to pick yourself up and keep going with this new challenge in front of you. Can you talk about what mentally you had to go through with that? It's just, uh, there's one specifically in the book that you talk about. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about that story is that it's not about the bike crash. It's kind of like what's applicable to everybody in, in their lives in terms of like meeting obstacles. I mean, in that case, it was you know, the second time I'd done this race Ultraman. It was on day two. The first day I had won the stage and I had like a 10 minute lead on everyone. And it looked like I could, you know, 
be on the podium at this race, which was absolutely insane because I was like 44 years old and had only been at this for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, on this day two, which is 171 miles on the bike, about 30 miles in, I, I slipped on wet pavement and went down and crashed pretty hard, banged up my knee, took all the skin off my shoulder and importantly, like broke, like cracked my pedal, you know, off of my crank. So it wasn't just like, get back on your bike and ride. Like I had no pedal, right? And it was an area of the race. With this race, every, every competitor has a crew that follows them in like a minivan that feeds them and you know, takes care of them, makes sure that they're safe and all of that. But this was like a protected area of the island where they didn't allow vehicles. So I had to pick myself back up and figure out like if I was okay and get on my bike and pedal on with one leg to, you know, like another mile or two to get to where all the crew vehicles were waiting for the athletes to pass through this particular section. And in that, you know, period of time, I realized like, well, this is over for me. Like I can't, I'm not going to ride you know, 140 miles with one leg. I mean, that's, you know, this is not happening. Like I'm done. And this sucks because I, you know, 10 minutes ago, I was in a very different mindset. Uh, thinking about podiums and now suddenly another switch got flicked and I'm like wow I can like gracefully bow out of this really painful experience and nobody can give me a hard time because I don't have a pedal like right. and I started thinking about going to the beach the next day with my kids and sleeping in the you know nice hotel room and all that kind of stuff and that's what's going on in my mind and when I meet up with my crew and the, these other crew vehicles um a guy who was uh working for another athlete saw my bike and he's like what kind of pedal do you need and i looked at him he was much bigger than me i kind of looked up at him <laughs> i said why are you asking me like i'm done and he disappeared and he came back and he had he, he had a box and in that box was a brand new version of the exact pedal that i'd broken and he grabbed my bike and he put the new pedal on and he's like here's your bike like get back on it like you're wife is here and your kids are here they didn't come all this way for you to like back out you know because you banged up your knee and that was not what i wanted to hear and i think what was you know really instructive about that experience is you know how powerful the mind is like one minute i'm like all in on this race and then something happens and suddenly i'm like i'm done i'm out i've checked out and then having to get back into that former mindset again, like is very, very difficult. And, you know, I did it and then I ended up, you know, completing that race and doing quite well. Um, and, and, and what I learned from that really is that, you know, when things don't go your way, like ideally I would have liked to have, you know, been on the podium at that race, et cetera. And that the ego loves that. And you get a lot of attention for that, but like, if everything goes to plan, like, what do you actually learn? Like, well, you learn that you can execute on a goal and that's valuable. Um, but other than that, you don't learn a whole heck of a lot. But when something goes terribly wrong. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, and, and you're forced to make a choice, a decision. Um, that decision and that choice are your teachers. Like those are what reveal character, right? And I realized in that moment that, you know, I was more capable than I thought that, that, that I was. And I learned, I learned more from, you know, things not going my way than I would have ordinarily. And it made me realize and remember that I didn't get into the sport 
to be on podiums. I got into it for the reasons I explained to you earlier, which was to have a transformative experience and to be faced with an obstacle, meet it and overcome it, um, gave me, was a big piece in that transformative journey that I was seeking. So I actually, it was great and I wouldn't change a thing. And ultimately, you know, it's something that I still think about to this day when things don't go my way or wish it was different, et cetera. It never goes exactly how you plan ever. And it generally works out for better than what you had planned. That's my experience at least. Yeah. hundred percent. Now, Rich, with all of this, you know, attention that you got and media attention and um, accolades and things like that, many, many people would crumble under the, 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 the pressure of the, of the ego of like, you're the best, you're awesome. You're great. Look what you've done. And I love, 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 love. How did you handle that kind of attention, which I'm assuming you didn't get as a corporate lawyer. Uh, so you, it was a new thing for you. How did you handle that? Um, you know, as also as a recovering, as a recovering addict and, and in your recovery, I mean, I can't, I can't believe that kind of attention is good for recovery as a general statement. I might be wrong, but please tell me what, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, well, the, the first thing I would say is I still suffer on some level from imposter syndrome. Like I just can't even believe that I'm here and I'm still waiting for them to like take my microphone away or (laughs) same here, my friend here. Same here. (laughs) So, so, and, and also, um, you know, I'd never won a big race. And then when I got a book deal, it was like, Oh, I'm going to, I get to write this book. Like, but I'm not a world champion and I'm not like, yeah, I did some interesting things, but there's a lot of people out there who are a lot better at this stuff than I am. Like, why am I being tapped to write a book? You know, I'm, I'm constantly, you know, reminded that I've been given this privileged opportunity to do certain things that most people, you know, never get in their lifetimes. And I think that keeps me humble and grounded. And, you know, then the book came out, it wasn't a New York Times bestseller. It's not like, I have all the, you know, it did fine and it continues to sell and that's great. And people enjoy the book. Uh, then I started the podcast and, you know, was starving for years and years and years and almost lost our house and, you know, had cars repossessed. Like I've been humbled so much right. so that by the time I actually started to get, you know, meaningful success, um, I was a much more grounded, sober person and capable of, you know, handling the emotional experience of, of the attention, but it's still like, now I get a lot of attention and I really do have to endeavor to keep my ego on in check and remember, like, I didn't, this is not like, it's not about you, dude. Like you didn't do this. Like for some reason you're in this position where you get to do this cool thing, but you are you know, a servant to a message and it's not about your ego and your personality, but you know, I have to, I get caught up in it just like anybody would. And I have to, you know, bring myself back down to earth and all of that. But, you know, it happened, it happening, you know, I'm 55 now. And like everything that I'm doing is just kind of kicking into high gear now. And because I'm an older person and I've had a lot of experiences and I've been humbled so many times, I just think I'm able to process it in a healthier way than certainly that I would have been able to in my 20s or 30s. Oh my God. Could you imagine in your 20s or 30s? Jesus. I just, I mean, I, I mean, I had a a hell of an experience when in my 20s where I almost made a $20 million movie for the mafia and I was, 
uh, flown out to LA and I met all these huge movie stars and all this kind of stuff. And I look back at that and obviously it didn't go through. And I, I say, thank God I didn't get that. I would have, I would have self-destructed. I absolutely, I wouldn't, yeah. no tool set whatsoever to handle any sort of success at that age. I would have destroyed myself. So the universe was like, let's give him a taste. Let's torture him. Let's give him some trauma. And that's going to help him along the way for the rest of his life. Um, but you get, you get your, what you're, you know, capable of handling. Yeah. And and sometimes when you, sometimes we we all hear those stories of those people who get that when they're not ready. And we've seen it in Hollywood. I mean, both of you and I worked in the business, so we've seen it. People just destroy themselves. Um, it's it's not yeah. easy. It's not, fame and fame and attention and all that stuff. It's fleeting, but when it comes in, it's it's not an easy thing to handle. It it does. You do need to have been humbled a bit, and it's much better to get success in your 40s and 50s than it is in your 20s or 30s. <laughs> Second that. <laughs> now, uh, I've been a plant based. I've been plant based now for over a decade, and uh, mm-hmm. you are uh, an inspiration because you are, you know, one of the plant based, one of the the best known plant based athletes. Because you were doing it, like you said earlier, not a lot of people were talking about it or doing full plant based uh, athletics before. What part has uh, being plant powered, as you call it? Uh, affected you in your life as an athlete? And then of course, the main question is, where do you get your protein, sir? How do you live? <laughs> You're actually going to ask me that. Okay. No, of course. I'm um, never going to. No, no. I've yeah. asked that. Come on. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous for you and me, but so many people, that's the first question that comes in. How do you eat? I'm like, oh, I just go out and eat the grass. I don't even have to pay a gardener. I just eat the grass like a cow. That's all I do. <laughs> Yeah, it's been, you know, look, it's, it's been an amazing journey. There's no aspect of my life that, that isn't, you know, impacted positively by this lifestyle. And I'm sure you would agree with it. Mm-hmm. And it's been, you know, an evolution and a, a kind of growth accelerator for me as much as anything else. It's like, I, you know, I initially, you know, when I had that staircase episode and I was like, I need to make a change. Um, I did like a seven day juice cleanse and then I played around with a bunch of different diets and then thought, well, maybe I'll be a vegetarian, but then that just meant going to pizza hut and keeping the pepperoni off the, you know, like I tried all the easier, softer ways and was ready to kind of abandon, um, some methodology around healthy eating, uh, all together and just thought, well, maybe you're just supposed to feel like shit when you're in your forties. And, you know, I was just turning 40 at the time. And I thought, well, there's one thing I still haven't checked off here and it sounds horrible, you know, but I can't really say I gave it a go unless I give this a try. And that was, you know, eating hundred percent plant-based, which was such a foreign concept to me. This is 1998, uh, you know, what was it? What year was it? No, it was, uh, so let's see, 15 years ago, whatever that was. So 2000 and something. Yeah. 2007, yeah, 2005, 2006. Um, and, uh, very quickly, like within seven to 10 days of, of eradicating all animal products from my plates and, you know, getting rid of the processed foods as well. Um, I felt better than I'd felt in as long as I could remember. And I just realized like, wow, there's something about this that 
is really powerful. I want to understand it better and learn more. And it's just been a process of building on that ever since. And I made a promise to myself back then that if it wasn't working, <clears throat> that I wouldn't be dogmatic about it and I'd be willing to entertain a different way. But you know, it served me well for 15 years. And now at 55, I can still go out and you know push myself hard. And I'm not training as much as I was when I was doing those races because I have other interests and pursuits that I think are more meaningful to me now. But I still get out and you know train and crush myself and all of that. And I'm still able to build lean muscle mass and I feel very fit for a 55-year-old. And it's been incredible. But you know, my point being that at the inception of that journey, I would say that my motivations were were, you know, fairly, you know, selfish. It was somewhat about vanity. Like I didn't look I didn't like how I looked in the mirror. I didn't like feeling like shit. Uh, and I wanted to feel good in my body again. And I wanted to be able to like take my shirt off at the beach or whatever. And that was about it. Um, but, you know, as I've plotted this course, um, this lifestyle has opened me up to so much expansion. And my motivations for continuing to pursue the lifestyle are, are very different these days. Like, for me, it's about living, you know, more sustainably on the planet. And it's about living a life of ahimsa. How do you uh, live a more compassionate life? And the choices that we make every single day. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Not just what ends up on our plate three times a day, but all of our consumer choices have impacts on other people and on the planet. And to the extent that we can be more conscious around those choices, understanding that, you know, we all leave an impact on the earth and it's not about perfection, but it's about, you know, striving to be better, um, I think is a really beautiful way to live. And I can tell you when, you know, early on, like the, the, the plight of the animals was something that never entered my mind. And now, you know, that's something that I think about and consider quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the context of like the vegan movement, one of the things that kind of irks me is when people who are interested in making shifts in their lifestyle get shamed out of the gate because they're not doing it perfect. Or if you're right. a real vegan, you do it this way. And it's like every, nobody, you know, everybody is on their, you know, like journey towards being better. And I'm all about like fanning the flames of positivity and celebrating the small wins because I know that, you know, I've grown so much in the years that, you know, I've been, you know, trying to get better and you have to, you have to leave, you know, permission and space for people to have their own experiences and come into you know, their sense of awareness uh, on their own with encouragement. Now, you talked a little bit about processed foods. Can, you know, as, as being a plant-based guy myself, um, you could be a, a very unhealthy vegan. You could, you could, you could very, I mean, to be a vegetarian, you could be, like you said, just go to pizza and just leave the meat off and you're a vegetarian. Um, but being a plant-based uh, vegan or being a vegan, I got caught in the processed food world where there's just like now more, when I started 10 years ago and when you started 15 years ago, uh, there wasn't a lot of options. Like it, it, right. it was a challenge to find other than tofurkey, you know, which is, you know, mm -hmm. sorry, tofurkey is horrible. Um, <laughs> uh, 
there wasn't a lot of options where today there is so many plant-based foods and so many plant and processed uh, plant-based uh, options for you. What is your take on these whole processed foods? How can we kind of liberate, liberate ourselves a bit more from the processed <laughs> foods so it's better for our health? Yeah. You know, you, you said like, oh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was so much harder. But I like to flip that argument and say it's actually kind of harder now than it was then because, Absolutely. you know, these companies have figured out how to make meat and dairy analogs with plant-based ingredients that actually taste good. You know, that it used to be the, the stuff oh, tasted horrible. terrible, so you wouldn't want it anyway. Right. And the truth of the matter is that the preponderance of those products are made with a lot of, you know, additives and preservatives and sugar and saturated fat. fat and all these things that we're trying to, you know, get rid of in our diet. So there's a huge difference between being vegan and being plant-based and being whole food plant-based. So the rule, really, the rule of thumb is eat plant-based foods as close to their natural state as possible and try to eschew or avoid those processed foods. Um, and, you know, look, if you want to have like a you know, a plant-based, you know, one of those burger patties every once in a while, that's fine, but it shouldn't be the building block upon which you're, you're building um, your diet. So, I, you know, I think it is harder now to be, because you can delude yourself like, well, it's vegan, so it's fine. And then you realize like all you're eating is Oreos and like Beyond Burgers all day long, like it's not a healthy way to live. Right. At the same time, these things are not black and white or binary because I think it's a win for the planet. The more of these, you know, food products and and meat and dairy analogs um, are, you know, widely adopted at the fast food restaurants, et cetera, because, you know, truly we have to move away from animal agriculture, factory farming. It's killing the planet. It's obviously, you know, uh, uh, ending the lives of, you know, it's creating unbelievable suffering for billions of animals every every single year and you know, it's just a, it's a terrible way to produce food for humanity. And once you go plant-based and you actually feel better and realize that, oh, I feel better. It's better for the planet. It's better for the animals. Like all the boxes are checked. Like, why would I go back? And if I can thrive doing this, like, why are these systems in place that are so damaging? Like we need to elevate our consciousness and find real solutions to solving these problems. And I think you know, companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible and um, Just and, and, and the like are, are really in service to a better planet because they are creating uh, food products that people enjoy, that they like, that don't involve animal suffering or the downstream environmental implications that animal agriculture causes. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, so that health is a different function, right? Like that's, you know, you got to be a little bit more aware about that kind of stuff. But I think we're at the beginning of this journey. And some of these are now understanding like, oh, we can't just make it taste good. Uh, actually, people do care about like how healthy you know, coming along now that are doing both. And I'd like to see more of that. So I think it's really exciting in the food space. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so much innovation going on, not just in the United States, but all over the world, you know, Israel is like, you know, ground zero for a lot of interesting things in food innovation right now. And I, I, you know, I think that we're in a good place to really solve some of these existential crises that, that we face as a you know, global society. 
Now, Rich, I'm going to ask you a few questions. I ask all of my guests. Um, what is your definition of living a good life? Mm. I think living a good life is when your actions and your values are in sync, when you feel fully integrated and expressed in your true authentic self. And when you um, have choices about how to commandeer your time, like I think, you know, living a good life involves being conscious of and having domain over where you invest your attention and your energy. And, uh, and, and uh, I think it's often overlooked, like we don't value time as much as, as we should, but that's the real, you know, unrenewable currency that, that we all have. So for me, it's about, you know, constant growth, being devoted to growth, and always trying to narrow that gap between, <clears throat> you know, the person that I aspire to be and the person that I am today. What is your mission in this life? To uh, improve the lives and raise the consciousness in a meaningful, very meaningful way for as many people as I possibly can. So it's not, it's less about the number of people and it's more about um, the substantive impact that I can have on the trajectory of people's lives. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? To grow and to share freely with others what you've learned along the way. So growth yeah. and service. Fantastic answer, sir. And Rich, where can people find out more about you, uh, your books, your products and things that you are doing for, uh, for the world? Yeah, I mean, you can find everything out about me at richroll.com. Um, the podcast is the Rich Roll Podcast. You can find it on YouTube or on your favorite podcast player. Um, my memoir is called Finding Ultra. And then we have some cookbooks if you're interested in the plant-based lifestyle, the Plant Power Way and the Plant Power Way Italia. So you can find those on my website or also on Amazon. And then we have two volumes of a book called Voice and Change, which is kind of a coffee table version of the podcast with beautiful photography and excerpts from some of my favorite conversations, essays. It's pretty cool. And that's a self-published um, series that, that we do here. Rich, it has been an absolute pleasure and honor talking to you, man. You have been an inspiration uh, to so many people around the world. And I hope you continue to do the good work that you're doing and helping people around the world. And thank you on a personal standpoint um, for inspiring me. I, I don't think I'll go do ultra, but I feel like I'm going to, I'm going to work out a little bit more now uh, <laughs> after talking to you. Sir. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah. No, it's cool. Thank you, Alex. I really appreciate you having me on and right back at you. I think the more um, people that are kind of doing the thing that, that we do, the world is a better place. I think conversations do matter. Um, and the fact that, you know, you build an audience and I have an audience tells me that there is a thirst and there is a hunger for, you know, meaningful exchanges in our clickbait you know, kind of soundbite world. And that gives me hope. So more power to you. And you know, thank you for letting me share today. Appreciate you, my friend.
I really want to thank Rich for coming on the show and sharing his inspirational story to everyone listening today. He has inspired me to say the least. And I am, you know, I'm in my 40s right now. And I think I'm going to go through a little bit of a change. And thanks to Rich's example, I think I could do it. And again, he is a testament to show you that it is never too late to change your life for the better. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to check out Rich's amazing books and courses, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 100. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.